Well, good morning. Oh, such enthusiasm. <laughs> this is apropos of nothing, but as we sang that first song, sometimes uh, you get moments of delight as a Christian. And as I remember that Ben Pakula had written and composed that song, I thought back to our mission with him in 2012 when we were in Glen Innes. And Glen, uh, sorry, and Ben, um, Glen. Ben uh, was giving a short devotion at a, uh, a retirement village, and I went with him. There were just the two of us. And afterwards, the lady said to Ben, Can you play music? And I thought, <laughs> Stupid question. <laughs> uh, and so Ben spent the next 45 minutes playing hymns for these people. And it was a moment of great delight to see these people just shining as we sang about the Lord Jesus. And watching Ben say, how does that hymn go? Someone would hum it and he would then play it. It was wonderful. It has nothing to do with what I'm preaching about this morning, but I thought I'd share that with you anyway. Today, Friday and next Tuesday, I'm going to be looking at three encounters Jesus had with people uh, in Luke 7, uh, in that chapter. And uh, a centurion, a widow and her son, and a sinful woman. woman. Now, the three encounters tell us a great deal about Jesus, but each of the three focuses on someone who is an outsider or someone who should have been excluded. A Gentile, a dead person and an immoral woman. And yet Jesus engages with them and deals graciously with each of them. And as you look at these three encounters, you see essentials for us as Christians. In the first encounter, we're going to see a particular focus on faith. In the second encounter, a particular focus on hope. And in the third encounter, a particular focus on love. On orientation day a couple of weeks ago, uh, Tara asked me a number of questions. Uh, one was about, did we have an orientation day back in my day? And I had to check with Jane, who was in my year, although she was much younger than I was. We didn't have one back then. So Tara then went to the next question. And the next question was, so what do you remember about your first year uh, in college or something like that. And I mentioned the importance of the cohort and making friends and that sort of thing, but later I thought, what does stick in my mind? What does stick in my mind? Apart from Mark Thompson's very neat hair as our first year lecturer in Greek, <laughs> or Glenn Davies' wordiness whenever he came and lectured us, or the fact whenever you spoke to Peter Jensen, if you were more than six inches or 15 centimetres from his face, he didn't have the clearest idea who you were <laughs> until you said it's Colin Peter. <laughs> but as I thought about this, something Peter Jensen said in Doctrine 1 has stayed with me because it's simple but profound. And I remember him saying, your faith is only as strong as the object of that faith. Your faith is only as strong as the object of that faith. And then he went on to say, and because the object of your faith is the eternal son of God, your faith is strong. And the issue of faith is at the core of this account in Luke's gospel of a centurion seeking Jesus' help. Now, there are a number of ways we could define faith if you're trying to pick it apart. 
And I'm particularly interested in this account, how Luke, what Luke reveals about faith. One way of defining faith is it's made up of three parts, knowledge, agreement and trust. And this definition says uh, that all three have to be in place before you actually have faith. Uh, it's something like this when James says that faith without works is dead. I think he's describing a faith that knows, uh, in this case knows the gospel, even agrees with it, but has fallen short of trust in the Lord. And that is evident in their lives. Their works or their lack of works indicate lack of trust in Jesus. What this passage shows, however, is that there's another element needed that's not in that little definition. There's something else that that definition doesn't mention. Now, we know that faith is critical for the Christian believer. And here in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, we see a man's faith, which Jesus describes as such a great faith. And that in itself is worth considering. So I'm going to read the passage to you. I'm reading from the NIV, the first 10 verses of chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to, to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I, do not deserve, uh, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Here we have an encounter between Jesus and a centurion. It's sort of a strange encounter because we never see the centurion. He's never actually physically present. We only hear his words through intermediaries. And this differs from Matthew's account where there is a direct encounter between Jesus and a centurion. But here in Luke, it's not a direct physical encounter, but an encounter via words. Luke doesn't give us much information about the centurion, whether he's a centurion with the Roman occupying forces or a centurion in the service of Herod Antipas. Uh, we know from the account, and particularly from verse 5, that he doesn't seem to be a Jew. But this centurion has a problem. He has a servant whom he regards highly, and this servant, probably a slave, is dying. Now, Assuming he is not Jewish, and that's most likely the case, he does a strange thing. He approaches Jewish elders and seeks their help. He's heard about this Jesus, most probably that Jesus heals, because as we go back through Luke's Gospel, uh, news of him had spread. And so through these elders, he asks Jesus to come and heal his servant. And note the irony of this. A non-Jew, 
a centurion in either the Roman army or the army of Herod, comes to Jewish elders and asks them for their assistance. From this Nazarene teacher, hardly a figure the Jewish establishment would want to seek assistance from, and the elders agree to help. And they do this because they say, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And what is clear as you look at this, this is no normal centurion. He may have been an outsider. He may have been an authority figure in either the Roman army or Herod Antipas's army. But he somehow commands respect from these elders. They say he is worthy to have Jesus help him. And they explain why. He may have been a God-fearer, but Luke doesn't spell that out for us. So Jesus responds to their request and goes with him. But before he gets to the centurion's house, the centurion sends friends to stop him. And these friends have a further communication to Jesus from the centurion in verse, the second part of verse 6 to verse 8. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, but the soul is unto me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And what happens next is astonishing. Jesus responds to this man's words with amazement. Now I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And then the narrative concludes that when they returned to the house, they found the servant well. Interestingly, Luke does not record Jesus speaking a word of command to heal the servant, but the servant is healed. An unspoken word, a thought, no more needed. The key issue in the incident is summed up in Jesus' words in verse 9. Such great faith. Why does this centurion have such great faith in Jesus? And what is the basis of real faith in the Lord Jesus himself? Now, this passage helps us to understand this. First, there needs to be an understanding of our unworthiness, an understanding that humility is essential for faith. Humility and faith are aligned in the Bible. True humility is the realisation of our total dependence upon God and works against self-sufficiency and pride. We don't deserve anything from God. There is no worth in us to say, Lord, we deserve this. The Bible teaches we have no right to say that. And you see, the centurion got this right. There's a lot to commend this guy from a human perspective. He seems to be a compassionate man. Look at the trouble he's going to for this servant. After all, he could have got another servant quite easily. At the very least, he seems a humane man. He seems to be a generous man also. Look at what the elders say about him. He loves the the Jewish people and he's built our synagogue. And they hold him in high regard. And he was a man of some standing. He was a centurion who commanded. And yet with whatever knowledge this centurion had about Jesus, he knew he didn't deserve anything from him. That's some insight. After all, Jesus is one of the subjugated people. And this man belonged to the other side, the political winners. And yet he knows he's not worthy. There is a humility about the centurion with regard to Jesus that is so commendable. Humility 
is a right recognition of how we stand before our God, of his smallness and our greatness. And we see that expressed right throughout the Bible. God is the creator. We are but creatures. God is the provider and sustainer of all there is. We are dependent upon him. God is the saviour and we are sinners who need saving. And I think, I'm sure you can think of more. And when you look at this centurion, you see this humility in both his actions and his words. He doesn't come to Jesus directly with his plea of help. And he tells us later because he didn't feel it was worthy. He was worthy to come to Jesus and ask for help. And his words help us understand his sense of unworthiness. Verse 6, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Verse 7, I did not presume to come to you or I did not consider myself worthy to come to you. And see how this stands in contrast to the Jewish elders. They tell Jesus, this man deserves to have you do this for him. And they list the reasons why. They think this man deserves Jesus' help because he's such a good guy. But this centurion knows otherwise. And the irony here is, here is this Gentile who gets it and the Jewish elders don't. So an understanding of our unworthiness, our humility before the Lord is essential for faith. The proud have no need of faith. It is the humble who recognise their need for faith in the Lord Jesus. The second thing we see in this account is that the centurion has an understanding of Jesus' authority. We know theologically that this is God-given, but this man owns his understanding, this understanding. Luke doesn't spell out what this man understands exactly, but he gives us enough in the narrative to realise that this centurion understands that Jesus' authority is unique. Centurion, he comes from a situation where he gets authority. He himself is under authority. He has authority over men and he commands, he expects that they will obey him. And he realises that though he can command men and has authority at that level, that Jesus can command much more. And that's evident by what he says in verse 7, say the word and my servant will be healed. He knows that Jesus only has to say the word and it will be done. We're so blessed. We have God's word to reveal to us who Jesus is and why he is Lord. You think of Colossians 1. All things created by him, through him and for him, and all in him all things hold together. I don't know if you've ever read something and, and for the first time, even though you've read it before, and all of a sudden it hits you like a blinding light. I remember the first time I read that in Colossians 1. And I remember just thinking on it. So my very next breath is dependent upon the powerful Lord who sustains everything. My very next breath is dependent upon him. This centurion did not have Colossians 1. But God gave him an understanding of Jesus' authority that fueled faith in Jesus. The third thing, and it's obvious, he trusts himself to Jesus. He can't help his servant. I'm sure he's had physicians there seeking to make the man better. And it's obvious that Jewish elders can't help him because if they could have done this, they wouldn't approach Jesus. 
He sees his need for Jesus to help him in this desperate situation. He has an understanding of who Jesus is. He recognises that Jesus is the one who can meet his need and he entrusts himself and his servant to Jesus. For Jesus, the key thing here is faith. And after he hears the centurion's words delivered by his friends, Luke tells us that Jesus marvelled at the centurion and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus' response reveals a great deal. He marvelled at him. He was amazed at him. Only twice in the synoptics can I find Jesus recorded as marvelling at people. One in Mark 6.6 6, when he marvels at the unbelief that he finds in his hometown of Nazareth. And here in Luke 7 when he marvels at hearing the centurion's great faith. That tells us that there is something happening here that we should take notice of. As I look at this incident, the question that self poses to me is, what was the nature of this guy's faith? What did he actually believe? Well, clearly he believed Jesus had authority to heal his servant. Perhaps he had no more conviction than that. Yet Luke seems to be indicating more, and I think his emphasis in this account on the man's great faith is an indication of that. Perhaps not the more developed meaning of faith that became common after Jesus' death and resurrection and when the Spirit came and helped those first disciples to understand more clearly, but faith nonetheless. And a faith that was both great in Jesus' own words and worth emulating, but because it was focused on Jesus. And of course the irony here is where Jesus experienced rejection and unbelief on the part of so many amongst the Jewish people. Here was this Gentile showing great faith, an indicator of how the message of the Lord Jesus would later be received by many outside of Israel. And perhaps this incident in Luke 7 uh, is a parallel to Acts, Luke's second book, where Cornelius, another Gentile, accepts Jesus and therefore a great encouragement to those who are Gentiles. So what of us? Is our faith in Jesus based in great humility? Do we, as we pray, remember that we deserve nothing from him and yet in love he acts for our good? Is our understanding of Jesus enriched and shaped continually by earnest study of scripture so that the greatness of God and his son is continually before us? And do we recognise the responsibility we have when we're teaching people to keep directing them back to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith, the one who can meet not only their needs in this life but their needs forevermore, as Andrew has reminded us this morning. And are we prepared to trust him in every circumstance, in every situation? I had an illustration at this point. My wife said, you are not going to tell that illustration. So I've canned it. <laughs> I'm giving you something else instead. Friends, we stand this side of the cross and we know through God's word that we are justified by faith alone. Faith is critical for the Christian believer. We begin by faith and we walk by faith in the Lord Jesus. And what this account in Luke does is to remind us of those essential aspects of faith. Humility, 
understanding and trust. Now, as you can see from my grey hair, I am older. And one of the things that I miss greatly is singing some of the older hymns. So, Andrew, we need to get back into Cash Chapel sometime. So Andrew Leslie can play the organ and we can sing some hymns. But there's an old hymn that as I was thinking about this passage, they kept coming to mind and I'm going to read it to you because it sums up that last aspect of trust. And uh, those of you who know this hymn will probably start singing if I don't myself. I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, trusting only thee, trusting thee for full salvation, great and free. I am trusting thee for pardon. At thy feet I bow, for thy grace and tender mercy trusting now. I am trusting thee for cleansing in the crimson flood, trusting thee to make me holy by thy blood. I am trusting thee to guide me, thou alone shalt lead, every day and hour supplying all my need. I am trusting thee for power, thine can never fail, words which thou thyself shalt give me, must prevail. I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus. Never let me fall. I am trusting thee forever and for all. The hymn writer got it. Humility, knowledge of the Saviour, trust in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that at the beginning of this year we can turn to your word and be reminded again that it's all about Jesus. We thank you for the example of the centurion, for the way that you worked in him to bring him to that faith, that great faith in Jesus. And we pray that having meditated upon that little account this morning, you might remind us of the importance of humility before you, of growing, increasing in our knowledge of you as we read your word. And in every situation, seeking to put our trust in you. Please help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.